0: Of these full bios, it's well worth the, the look at that. But Gretchen has uh, had a 30 year career in the Navy, um, also being deployed on some aircraft carriers in the Mideast, a couple different deployments um, on George Washington and also the USS Ronald Reagan, uh, being involved in a lot of the, the satellite management in terms of information that we get and then her most recent post which was with if I'm getting this right Gretchen you're basically working on space defense is that accurate
1: uh well that was part of it but um it was cybersecurity and uh and cyber defense throughout the navy
0: okay so just that that little role um so Outside of that, though, you retired in 2014. Now I'm going to go into the interview here, <laughs> <your laughs> question with you. So you retired in 2014. What do you find yourself doing these days?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, it's going to be very anticlimactic for anyone who thought I was going to go off and and uh, save the world. Um, I have been doing predominantly volunteer uh, work for organizations that um, I'd always had an interest in, but never really had the opportunity when I was active duty maybe. So uh, I am actually on the board of a kind of a sister program to what you all are in, um, uh, Vision Transylvania County. And that's basically was a year long um, class where we would learn about our community, about the needs, volunteer needs, um, environmental needs, business needs uh, throughout, and then continued on with that board. Um, but to tell you the truth, John, the thing I probably do the most and I enjoy the most is getting on the trails and hiking with my husband and my dog. So uh, nothing really earth-shattering, except it, uh, it certainly fills a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, desires that I had when I retired from the Navy.
0: Great. Well, I'm going to let you take it away um, with just the one other caveat that I did ask, uh, just before we came on this morning. So how are you guys connected here? And how do you know Mandy? And um, so what's interesting is, so Roger took a Knowles course uh, as well as Gretchen both. And Roger ended up even working for Knowles, uh, a couple courses with the Naval Academy. Uh, So, and Mandy was his instructor on his instructor's course. And he, as he mentioned to me, uh, yeah, so here I was, 50-year-old, and my mentor, she was assigned to me as my mentor and was 25 at the time and coming out as a career as a SEAL. So interesting (laughs) ways that you got in front of us this morning. So thanks for coming. And uh, with that, why don't you take it away on complexity?
1: Great. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Um, good morning, y'all. Uh, thanks so much for having Roger and myself here today to uh, to talk with you. Now, as I look through this screen of all these leaders, um, I understand that I'm certainly not an authority um, by any stretch of the imagination on uh, leadership in some of the um, organizations that you are part of. So I'm going to speak specifically from my um, experiences in the Navy when I talk about um, complexity and the challenges that introduces to an organization as well as the leaders of that, of that organization with two um, kind of parallel uh, scenarios. The first will be um, introducing information technology modernization across the fleet and the complexity and the kind of the challenges and the thought process we would go through to um, enable that and to uh, build towards success. And the second is gender integration, which doesn't probably sound like it should be terribly complex, but uh, in the Navy and certainly for the afloat Navy, it did bring some challenges in. So I am going to see if after I tell you I'm a IT expert, I can learn how to share screen and You the, I think I've right. got it Oh right um, here do, do. Where are, you looking? <laughs> are you impressed yet? Are you seeing the slides?
0: You're impressed.
1: <laughs> okay great that, that was. was that was probably more difficult than it should have been so. Um, much like John, I am not used to presenting in this scenario. I usually am up walking around the group, talking with people, engaging, asking questions. Um, and, uh, so this is, a this is learning something new for me as well. So that's great. Um, uh, what I did want to talk about obviously was dealing with complexity, um, and in particular for me during large organizational changes, the steps that we took and, uh, how that, um, brought some success. So the first uh, scenario I want to talk about is um, IT modernization. And I promise it won't get too geeky and it won't be too uh, dry. But these steps apply both um, uh, well in this particular scenario scenario, as well as when we introduced um, gender integration uh, afloat. First off, um, beginning of any planning is uh, to make sure that you have a, a, a diverse uh, group of um, individuals. So you're getting a diverse group of um, ideas in when you're planning your strategy. Uh, teams always always make uh, much better decisions um, than if you have a very homogeneous group that is doing the planning. You're going to come out with some very simple and very um, uh, similar um uh, solutions, which is not necessarily going to help with, um, with solving those those problems. The other thing with collaborative planning that's absolutely essential, or it was for us, is to get um, buy-in from the top. So I'm in this particular context, I'm speaking as um, I was probably the equivalent of the CIO, the chief information officer. But unless you had the CEO, and the chief financial officer also part of that decision process it wasn't going to um, make it very far Um, in particular the highest person in the navy really needed to support what you were about to do or what you wanted to do to upgrade um, communications and it for the fleet because one it was going to be extraordinarily disruptive two it was going to be painful and three it Probably was not going to be the nirvana that everyone hoped it would be right right out of the um, right out of the gate. Uh, the best way that I had found to be able to um, get buy-in not only from um, our stakeholders and leadership, but also for the folks that were going to be um, uh, experiencing those um, upgrades and the the, mo- the new modern technology was to communicate and to communicate throughout the entire um, process. From stating your vision, to reasons why you're choosing that particular path, to managing the expectations that, um, that folks would have. Uh, now, when we were doing a lot of our um, uh, upgrades for our afloat units, folks would go home and they would have um, an iPhone, they would have an Apple computer, they would wonder why they couldn't just buy a laptop, open it up and then have everything that they had at home when we were working on a network in the uh, in the military. And so we did have to um, really kind of push the the cyber concerns, the privacy concerns and the sharing concerns. And that was not going to be terribly successful unless we talked to them, um, the constituents basically throughout the entire process on how to do that. Um, the next thing that was probably extraordinarily challenging for the IT modernization is, let me take you back a little bit to the way we used to um, have our ships operate. The, uh, the CEO of a ship, or basically the commanding officer of a ship usually was pretty autonomous. Um, He or she could do whatever they needed to, to their systems and to the network, depending on what they wanted and needed while they were on deployment. And that intuitively sounds like a really good thing. And quite frankly, before we became very networked and before we integrated all of our comm systems and combat systems and weapon systems together on a network, it was a pretty straightforward endeavor. But once networking and, um, and the requirements for cybersecurity came in, we found that um, upgrading uh, the systems afloat was a lot more difficult than we had thought. You would think that with 290 uh, ships in the Navy with four different classes of ships, you would just have to know how to do it for four different classes of ships and not every individual ship. But unfortunately, what we found was that because there were so many variations on every single ship, we had to almost recreate um, how we were going to do these upgrades and modernization when we, um, when we went on each uh, aboard each ship, and that was uh, difficult. Um, Certainly part of the expectation management was uh, letting the CEO know why this was now taking months and years instead of uh, days and and weeks, which you would expect with some of these um, uh, shore-based systems. Um, The next uh, step we would take uh, on this process was assessing how we were doing and adjusting, and we always needed to adjust because there were always some challenges that came, unexpected um, uh, issues that we had not anticipated or actually um, operational deployment issues. A ships out on deployment for six months and that gets extended to seven months, eight months, 10 months because of world events. And uh, they miss their uh, window of opportunity to get some of their modernization and and upgrades. And that um, uh, caused a um, kind of a, a domino effect on scheduling and having to push this particular unit this particular ship to uh, two years away before they could get that um, upgrade again. And then uh, lastly, on the, um, on the complexity issue, um, again, because this is a, a cyclical effort uh, for modernization um, afloat and being able to make sure that all of the units could talk to each other as well as talk back to uh, the shore, we had to again um, look at where we had to change our planning and uh, communicate again uh, with everyone from stakeholders on down to the sailors on board the ship, what needed to be done. It's probably pretty intuitive to all of you, but anytime you introduce a new system on a ship and then you send that ship away for six to 10 months, the expectation is those sailors on board the ship know how to maintain and upgrade and keep those systems running. So besides all the physical work that is being done on board the ship, There's a parallel pipeline that had to happen to uh, ensure that all of those um, sailors were trained before they deployed so they could keep those units uh, self-sustaining as they deployed. Um, And uh, before I move into the gender side, John, were there any um, questions that um, I needed to address with uh, IT modernization? Sorry, uh, the only question,
0: Nick, maybe you want to expand or why will, will will you please expand on this question now because I know you asked early on in in the connection, so maybe if you still have that question regarding mentoring um, and gender integration certainly, it just seemed like um, when we were thinking about um, the gender um, integration and then going into uh, mentoring up and down, it seemed like there may be a parallel and maybe that's something to address right now, or um, really just kind of begging your thoughts on, on the subject. Perhaps it's something uh, better to address uh, at the end of the discussion.
1: No, no, that that's fine. So um, when you're, when you're talking about uh, mentoring and then you brought in um, uh, the gender side of it, Nick, were you asking in particular, um, is it uh, difficult to, um, you know, be, a, a small minority on a group, on a, on a ship and not have kind of the similar gender for mentorship.
0: Some way Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's gotta be challenges with that. And, uh, just maybe your, your perspective on how you've right. had to deal.
1: Yeah. So one thing, um, and thank you for that, that question, Nick, one thing that I learned, um, early on, uh, as a, a young female officer back in the eighties was, um, I actually never really had an expectation that my mentors needed to look like me or be like me or even have the same experience. So throughout my career, I've had some um, fabulous mentors, uh, both male and female. Uh, that was more um, the the mentorship be, uh, came because of you know, hey, this is my first shipboard tour. You know, I've been in the Navy for 15 years. I've never been at sea before. Um, you know what do I need to learn? What's the crash course I need before I go go aboard to learn that? And many of those mentors were um, were not females also coming on board for the for the first time. So I guess one of my big takeaways was uh, some people might actually feel more comfortable if their mentor had exactly the same experiences they had and look like them and sound like them and dress like them. Um, but I found uh, it was actually beneficial to find someone who maybe thought differently from me and uh, had a lot of differences that kind of helped me formulate um, some of my uh, personal leadership styles and some of the solutions to problems. Does that address your? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Nick. So uh great segue. Thanks, Nick, um, for moving into the um, the gender integration side and just to kind of, frame this, I mentioned that I joined the Navy in um, 1984. Um, and uh, it had only been about six years before that the Navy actually opened up um, service academies like uh, the Naval Academy for women to start being trained at the Academy alongside their um, their male counterparts. There were certainly women in the Navy before that, uh, particularly Navy nurses, but um, there wasn't a really big a session of females in the Navy, we were probably about uh, two or 3% um, of the Navy in, as far as um, gender percentage. Uh, in the, around 84, when I joined again, it had been about six years since um, women had started being admitted into the Naval Academy. So they were just coming out into the fleet for the, the last one to two years when I, um, when I joined the military. Uh, there was something called the combat exclusion law, which was um, applied to all of the services. And it basically said women were prohibited from serving on combat vessels um, in combat units and uh, on aircraft that um, had combat missions, so fighter and attack aircraft. And uh, that was in place for... um, for many decades um, until there was this realization pretty uh, shortly after um, uh, Desert Storm and the, um, uh, the operations in Iraq that regardless of whether you said women were assigned to combat units or to uh, combat um, uh, ships and aircraft, they were engaged um, regardless of uh, whether it was designated as a combat unit. So in 93, um, the uh, uh, Department of Defense lifted the combat exclusion law, which basically said women are now um, assignable to combat ships and um, aircraft and and combat units, with the exception of a couple um, uh, units like uh, submarines, which which I can expound on if you're interested. Uh, So it was a pretty quick turnaround between um, the end of 93 and uh, four months later in 94, when the first women reported on board an aircraft carrier, uh, the USS Eisenhower, um, to uh, serve as their, um, you know, first uh, women afloat on a combat unit. Uh, so that makes it sound like, wow, that was a, a pretty quick and a lot easier um, to um, accomplish than... Um, than IT modernization. much easier to put a woman on board than, um, than an IT system, but it, it was also a very methodical process in that the Navy looked at which ships do we have that would take only minimal um, refurbishment or changes around in the, in the um, logistics of it to uh, allow us to have women on board. And um, this sounds, you know, kind of rudimentary, but um, for our enlisted personality, you lived in open bay birthing, you slept in open bay birthing, you have, you know, 200 racks um, for your uh, sailors, it wasn't a big deal that they shared a head and they shared open bay birthing, but once you introduced females on board, you needed to designate female-only birthing and female-only um, uh, beds or, or, excuse me, heads or, um, or bathrooms. So that was very easily accomplished on an aircraft carrier, but not so easily accomplished on smaller ships that had very limited um, options for birthing. Uh, so that's why it took the Navy actually about um, five more years before they were able to fully integrate the um, of the ships with uh with female personnel started with onesies and twosies i mean let me take that back not onesies we never assigned a single female to a ship of five thousand, and and her being the only female but it was about uh six percent um six to ten percent um female the navy's uh just to take a step back the navy's goal right now is to achieve um 25 percent um of its uh workforce would be female. Um, unlike in our civilian uh, communities where you would see 48 to 52, 53% is female, the the kind of that, that high water mark that uh, the Navy is striving to achieve is about 25%. And it's not that it's restricting females, but it's it's frankly, um, the desire and the um, the ability of, uh some of the folks that are joining into the Navy on whether or not they um, are able to uh, to stay for 20 or 30 years, um, and uh, and that's a decision process that a lot of females make when they uh, come into the Navy that they're going to do about 10 years and then and then move along uh, and do something do something else. But that was kind of the process of bringing uh, females on the Navy into the um, afloat Navy. It was a lot more complicated than just restocking the ship's stores with, um, you know, things that a, a female would want to buy when she's underway for six months, as opposed to what the, what the men buy. Um, so that was, uh, a lengthy process. I will say, and you know, it's, it's kind of humorous, but I would say that, um, gender integration afloat was probably less controversial and more readily accepted than IT modernization afloat because one, it was less painful and two, it actually brought a lot of great things right from the get go um, when we integrated our um, afloat units. And uh, women today are serving on every single combat ship and aircraft that we have. Um, Submarine um, duty for females was opened up about uh, five years ago. And um, Roger will um, attest that the SEAL training has now been also opened up to females, although I don't know if um, we've had any that have gone through the entire, uh, the entire process. But uh, again, these steps that I've outlaid for you, um, the, the planning, the communicating with to manage those expectations, and then being able to be flexible enough to kind of adjust on the fly, when you find um, perturbations or changes that you were, um, had not anticipated to uh, have that successful transition. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what I had uh, prepared. But I'm more than happy to, um, to segue out to anything else you might have questions on. And if not, I'll turn it back over to John.
0: Yeah, let's do this. Um... I'm sure. As opposed to just waiting for one question, let's go into breakout rooms. And if you would, uh, we're going to spend maybe 10 minutes there. um, And dialogue in the breakout room, either uh, something that came up conceptually that Gretchen mentioned or something that caught your attention, either statistically and, and perhaps why that caught your attention. Why was that important to you? Uh, and also start sharing. You know, if you're if you're talking about your own experience of leading during complexity, what like what's your frame of reference? What's your what do you think works? What's helpful for you? So somewhere dialoguing along those two concepts. Um, Linda or Mandy, this is where I might need help in terms of how we're going into breakout rooms. (laughs) Oh, and then with that, I think we'll come back. Um, We'll hear from a couple of the different breakout rooms, perhaps very quickly and or um, the questions that might have come up for Gretchen as a collective group that way.
1: Okay, I think Linda will open the rooms like we did yesterday and we will click on them and join them and there should be one to two facilitators or speakers in each of the rooms um, as well. We're not seeing it quite. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Okay, enjoy the vortex everyone.